Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. How's the new movie house coming? It's done, and it's up, but it's not um, uh, live. It's hidden. Okay. It's hidden away. Certain people have seen it. Um, it's, it's yeah, I'm, I'm creating new characters, and it's it's kind of, like, weird, because it's, it's not a real, like, show show, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's kind of like um, like the half-in-the-bag red-letter media guys doing something where okay. there's, like a, there's a continuation of things going on, but you can come in at any point and still, you know... I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, but like I said, I do appreciate you being on. It was a very last minute thing today. Me and my my co-host were supposed to talk about Ghostbusters, but I haven't heard from him in a couple days. I hope he's okay. That yeah, you might want to you might want to make sure his cat hasn't eaten his face. Like he 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 hasn't read any messages over the last couple days. Like I hope he's okay, but I've got a deadline on Friday, so I had to make do. (laughs) And I'm I'm glad that I am make do. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a, I had a a short list of people I'd wanted on the show in case I ever needed to do an episode by myself, and that short list was number one, Ron. Hey. Number two, just myself. Well, if you can't trust yourself, who can you trust? Yeah, because well, I know I, I knew for a fact that you are ready to go at any moment because you've got audio equipment. You've you've done this before. You, you know, you're just you're, you're just ready to record audio at any point. It's true. I really am. Uh, that's why I, I, if I like a girl, I never bring her home because you never know what could end up on a microphone somewhere. Have you seen the TV show version of Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three yet? I haven't. I had it, um, but then I was just. I heard the TV. I heard like the. the it's that's a Hulu thing with James Franco, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had. I've heard like I used to listen to this podcast called Punch Drunk TV. And okay. it's not that I not that I stopped listening because it was bad, but I just stopped listening because when you have you get just bogged down in podcasts and you fall behind so far. Uh, oh only, yeah. The only podcast I'm really far behind on that I I keep listening to is anything Jim Cornette puts out. But that's for another podcast. Um. Uh. So I mean, I, they said that it was kind of meh, and I trust their judgment. Um. Then again, the person who was saying it was meh was the nerdy guy from VR Troopers. So. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that goes. I, I only mention it because this is not a suit. This is not really a spoiler, and if you're not going to watch it anyways, it doesn't matter. You know, so obviously the conceit of it is that James Franco goes back in time and is trying to prevent the assassination of of JFK. Right. Uh, and there's a point to which as his, you do, uh, as you do, yeah, as you do. Uh, he goes back in time, and uh, so he 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 breaks the cardinal rule of going back in time, and he falls in love. The, his 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 girlfriend comes over to his house when he's not around and finds his tape recorder because he's been he, he's been spying on Lee Harvey Oswald for like two years and she, of course she turns on the tape recorder for whatever reason right when James Franco was listening to Lee Harvey Oswald and his and his girlfriend having sex. Okay, first off, and how that's... the hell does Lee Harvey Oswald have a girlfriend? I've seen pictures of this guy. He is not uh, uh, a pretty a pretty fella. But if he can Mail get a girl, bride. 
Well, I guess. I mean, but if he can, if she's probably Cuban or Russian. Um, she's Russian. He met her when he was in Russia. Oh well, because see, and that's the thing is, I have this whole conspiracy about JFK. I really think that it was the mob that killed him. Uh, I don't think it was the CIA. I don't think it was the Russians. I don't think it was. Because think about it this way. Let's let's let's, let's okay, hear me out. He was killed by who? Jack Ruby, who had known mob uh, ties. Do you think that he killed uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald because he was upset at what happened to JFK? No, he was shooting the guy because he knew he'd talk. You know what? That's a fascinating theory. <laughs> I didn't think this was going to become the, the, the JFK assassination hour, but... Hey, I mean, you make a pretty Stephen, solid King, point. Stephen King, listen, so when you do the sequel. Because I know at one point James Franco goes to the future. In his in his DeLorean, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a closet. No, oh well, no. Oh, I see. That's when you say it like that. That makes it, it. The jokes can just flow. James Franco having to come out of the closet. If if you if you decide to watch it at any point, I know uh, in the past you've had a love hate thing with Hulu. Uh, I don't know if that's still standing, but it's, if you ever watch it, it is. I still kind of like. I mean, I I uh, when I didn't have access to the DVDs of Rick and Morty. I uh, was uh, I, I I did the whole, hey look look at this free trial. I'm just gonna binge Rick and Morty. Well, if you ever decide to 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 cheat Hulu out of money again, uh, watch Eleven Twenty Sixty Three. If anything, just for James Franco's facial expressions throughout the course of the show. He has them. Yes, and they're so misplaced. And I'll be, I'll be, I actually liked the show. I liked the show a lot. Me and my wife were hooked on it, but some of his facial expressions were just so misplaced. Like in moments uh, of drama, he just looks disgusted. And in moments uh, of amusement, he looks disgusted. <laughs> uh, at that point, I guess I really should, uh, you know, introduce you proper and, and start the show. Oh, yeah, so, I'm, I'm me. <laughs> Yeah, so let me do the actual official intro, and then we'll go from there. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Viers, and I am not necessarily alone today, but Nick couldn't be here. So instead, I got my buddy Ron Pertee to be on the show. Some of you might know Ron because he's uh, he's been doing the podcast game for quite a long time. He's a YouTube personality. He's a film critic to an extent. I don't know if you, I think you might have a love-hate thing with film critic as well. So let's go with film personality and an all-around movie lover, and I want to have him on the show today. Is this where I talk? Yep, yep. Okay. That, that's that's where it comes in. That's where I talk. <laughs> Hi, talk. Hi, five folks. How's it going? And I, I, You're right. I have a love-hate relationship with the term film critic because I still feel like deep down inside of me, I still have movies that need to be made, and I always feel weird about those people who review films and then go off and do their own. But then I also think that I think the only people who are truly qualified to critique a film are people who've made them. So it's, it's, it's a, a hit or miss thing. You know, I recently watched this web show. I'm not going to name any names because 
I don't. It's not that I don't want to give them publicity. It's just that what they said is so outlandish. They said that They Live isn't a good movie. I'll be the first to admit that's on my shame list still. Oh, oh. Anyway, <laughs> so it's it's a fantastic movie. I'm sure you've heard about the fight scene already. You don't, you know, that's not. I, I know. I feel like I know everything about it without actually having seen the movie. Yeah, and uh, so they said it's a bad movie, and right then I realized that I'm not clicking with these people because they're the Roger Ebert kind of. Um, I don't want to use the term pretentious, but I will. Pretentious film goer. You know, trying to analyze every little thing. Um, and I knew I didn't see eye to eye with Roger Ebert when I went back and read some of his reviews of the Friday the 13th series. And if you know me, you know my love of uh, a nice, leisurely killing at Camp Crystal Lake. Our next movie is named Friday the 13th Part 5. And why was I so lucky that I got to review this movie instead of you. I'll get my chance. I don't know, I guess the big dice up in the sky. Roland <laughs> said, Friday the 13th, Part 5. For Roger, this movie is subtitled, A New Beginning. That's because Part 4 was called The Final Chapter, and they didn't think that Part 5 would sound real good if they called it the first epilogue, I guess. But actually, this movie is just more leftover recycled garbage from the last four times around. It uses the same basic old formula, the formula I call the dead teenager formula. You know, where there are a lot of living teenagers at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> and by the end of the movie, all of the teenagers are dead. They are apparently all being killed by Jason, the guy in the hockey mask, who has been slicing and dicing teenagers with his machete for five movies now. And the formula is always the same. Jason is out there in the wind and the rain, and there are dead bodies all over the house, and everybody is screaming, and their clothes are ripped off their backs and there's blood all over and so of course more teenagers think it over and decide that what they've got to do now at this moment of crisis is walk out in the forest by themselves jason is out there there are dead bodies everywhere let's go skinny dipping <laughs> right. the producers of friday the 13th part five have decided not to supply any scenes from the movie for reviews on television and i wonder why not or maybe i don't wonder no, why you not. know in why fact, not maybe i'm happy that we don't have to look at any scenes from this movie again but what we do have are the coming attraction trailers from the film, and this is as close as I hope you get to this movie. Um, and it's just, I can't, like, you know, people don't, it's almost like people forgot how to have fun at the movies. Everything's either, uh, we're going because it's air-conditioned, and we're going to talk on our phones, or we're going to sit there and we're going to pick it all apart because we have no joy left in our lives. Well, one thing I will say, um, a couple thoughts about all of that. Not arguing with you because I, I agree to a, a huge extent that uh, while I don't think filmmakers are the only ones who can critique because um, I think some of the best film critics are the ones who either have tried to make films and necessarily didn't do well with it um, – and actually, a lot of filmmakers started as film critics. We wouldn't have the French New Wave. That wasn't the case. We, uh, we wouldn't have Joe Dante. We wouldn't have... Um, Bogdanovich. Bo that, you knew exactly who I was talking about. Yes, we wouldn't have those people had they not have been film critics. Before. I feel like to be a film critic, you need to legitimately love movies. Well, that's that goes uh, without saying, yeah. I like I because I've read a lot of reviews from people. It's like, do you even love this anymore? Maybe, maybe you did at one point because like I feel like you could ride the line of being super pretentious and liking pretentious things because I know I can, but then I'll also have fun with other things. Uh, much like you've got to love hate with the term film critic, uh, I actually prefer film culturist because I think that kind of sums it all up really well, nicely. Well, that's very fancy of you. 
I've got a love hate with the, with Roger Ebert, uh, where I respect the hell out of him, and when I agree with him, I full wholeheartedly agree. But there's sometimes I just feel like he's um, just trying too hard to be mean. See, I'm. That's the thing is, it's weird. You know, as you get older, you're supposed to get into the more kind of passive stuff and like mature with age kind of thing. Um, and this is where things get fun. I have actually gone the opposite direction. I used to be into the whole, um, let's, let me go, let me, Barnes and Noble's having a Criterion sale. I'm going to go load up on movies that I think I want to watch. But then when it comes down to it, you're kind of like bored. But then when someone says, Hey, here's a copy of Sleepaway Camp 2, you get revved up and you're ready to go. So I guess I'm. I'm not like a, a, a traditional uh, film reviewer guy. I mean, for, for crying out loud, August on Movie House is Ape Month. I'm talking about the Planet of the the original Planet of the Apes movie movies, and those don't. I mean, that's that's about as ex- exploitation as you can get. I think you know uh, to to an extent because there's you know heavy makeup and million dollar budgets, but um, it's it's a movie with mo- talking monkeys. You know, and uh, fair point. Yeah, and I think that I think that my sense of things have gone f- closer more to Mr. John Bloom than they have Mr. Roger Ebert. That's fair. You know, like I still feel like, and maybe it's because uh, I am a, a little bit younger that I I'm still riding the line in between because there is you know as much because horror movies is what brought me to the dance. Uh, Same here. But there's some times where I just don't want to watch one. I'm just not in the mood. I'm not in the mood for something. I can't explain it. I, I just there's sometimes like I it's the last thing I want to watch or want to do. Or sometimes like I don't want to watch something fun, light and airy. There's sometimes where like I just, nothing's gonna satiate that appetite like some pretentious, weird foreign film. And maybe that'll change with age. But like there's sometimes like I just want to watch something that's mentally and emotionally stimulating yeah see i'm actually working on a on an essay right now um about uh the theater going experience and how it used to be okay to have a reaction to a film because there was that uh video that came out uh i don't know if it was a couple years ago and bloody disgusting just reposted it uh about a live audience reaction to halloween for the first time and you know the moment when michael sits up in the back, behind Jamie Lee Curtis, and yeah. the, the crowd loses their mind. They just go crazy, and that's the kind of reaction I'm totally okay with in the theater. Not the kind of reaction where people are talking to one another, or uh, you know, just chewing on popcorn next to you, uh, or they're on their phone, that kind of thing. So I'm kind of talking about how it used to be okay to make noise in a theater, but now, not anymore. Well, I'm I'm not necessarily opposed to talking. But what I mean talking, like, say if I go see a movie with my wife, I'm going to make a comment or say something to her. But I'm not – I don't want it to be loud enough where the entire audience can hear it. Oh, right. Definitely. Because definitely. I, f- I feel like th- that's the the part of the movie-going experience is this, it's this communal thing. You are riding the energies of everyone else with you. And part of the fun in seeing a movie with someone is being able to experience it together and – there's part of me that believes that yes, I like I prefer when a theater is, is silent. But same time, I'm going to, 
like I said, if you're going to say something, just make it sure that the people behind you cannot hear you. Right, exactly. And this actually, uh, um, this brings me up to something that David Lynch said about the way things are now. Uh, if you watched The Last Drive-In on Shudder uh, before Tourist Trap, Joe Bob quoted David Lynch talking about how he's fine with technology moving forward, but you can't, you know, stop trying to watch a movie on your phone. You know, yes, and we I've, need... I've actually used that clip in the show before. There you go. See, we need the communal experience. It's all we have left. You know, because that's it's the only place where we can go where we're not going to argue politics. We're not going to argue religion. We're not going to argue uh, uh, immigration. We're just going to sit there and we're going to watch the movie and then get away for the two hours. It's not even about what's on the screen anymore. It's just about having that escape away from everything so bad in this world. And actually, one, and I completely agree with you. And one thing I feel like is, is becoming the issue with movie theaters is people are becoming far too comfortable at movie theaters. And part of that's because the reclining chairs and all this other shit. Being, like, you shouldn't be able to get a burger and a fucking pizza inside, in a movie theater. Like, gone are the days of movie theater seats. Yeah, I've always felt that movie theater seats should be a little wider, but I wasn't thinking they are going to, you know, make full-on recliners. Well, that's because we're, bo- like we're, some... bo- we're both a little wide in the pants, but that's okay. <laughs> I totally agree with you, yes. They need to be a little bit wider. I just feel like the people are becoming far too comfortable. They feel like they're just in their living room. Well, that's and that's yeah. the issue. That's I, I totally understand that because I remember when South Shore in Milwaukee was or mm-hmm. was that Oak Creek? I don't know. Um, was doing it's, yeah, it's South Shore. Okay, uh, they were uh, doing um, every Friday and Saturday in the month of October. They were showing a different horror film, and I went up there with my buddy every every Friday. We went and saw what I was Halloween, The Shining, Friday the Thirteenth, and Nightmare on Elm Street. I think. Um, and so we get up there and we meet, we see some people that we knew and they sit there and they recline the seats up. They bring a blanket out and they snuck food and like, what is going on? Whatever happened to going to the movie theaters and having to bring a second pair of shoes because the other pair that you're wearing is going to get stuck to the floor and you're going to have to crawl over the seats to get out. Exactly. And the the problem is that it's becoming such a norm because I'll be the first to admit well, the only thing I sneak into the movie theater is I sneak water bottles in because I don't, I shouldn't have to pay five dollars for water. No, you should. Um, but I bought, you know, I buy my popcorn, I buy everything there. I've brought a, bl- I've brought a blanket before too, and I was like, why am I doing this? It's because it's becoming the norm, and, so, and sometimes as much as you fight something, it's hard to go against it. That's why I love that there's still independent theaters out there that have got traditional movie theater seats that just sell popcorn. Hell, I even got I've even got a thing with alcohol being served in theaters. I think that's completely wrong as well. But part of that is because I don't drink anymore. But I just I I, I want the movie going experience that I remember as a child and i know i'm rarely ever going to get that again well i mean if you if i remember when i went to go see friday the th- did you ever now did you ever go see friday the 13th part four the downer no i was not oh uh, it was it, it was fantastic i still have my five dollar gift card for from the exclusive company because i knew that uh tom savini and joe zito worked together on the prowler um and uh, that that kind of thing is cool you know, it's just the seats weren't exactly comfortable, but you got to see something that you haven't seen in a long time in that kind of a setting. Granted, when they started up, 
and you see like the DVD <clears throat> reader thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, because you can't get a 35 millimeter print to, unless you're uh, the new Beverly. Um, that kind of takes it out a little bit, but then the minute you see Crispin Glover get a hatchet in the face, uh, you know, all your cares go away. It took a long, for another day. It took a long time in that movie Down for your Crystal cares Lake. to go away. Well, no, I mean, well, that's the thing, is, and I just love how I just mixed Fraggle Rock and Friday the 13th together, but that's all besides the point. Um, the doozers are just killing people. Um, but, uh, no, it's a... Uh, you, you have to have the movie-going experience. You know, uh, even going to like Comic Con or going to any kind of convention like that is beginning to be a, an issue um, because people are, you know, self-centered d bags, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I can tell already, Ron, that I uh, you're the perfect uh, guest for this topic that we're going to be discussing. The one thing I will say is uh, that since this entire idea came together pretty last minute, I didn't do my proper host duties, and I didn't feel like I described you well enough. So before I explain what our topic is today, almost 20 minutes into the show, uh, could you tell hey, hey. could you tell the audience a little bit uh, more? Elaborate on what I've already mentioned. Tell us about what you, what you do, and uh, tell us a little bit about your, your current shows. I'm the, uh, I guess you could say showrunner for uh, Movie House with Ron Pertie. Uh It's if you're a fan of Half in the Bag uh, from Red Letter Media or uh, Welcome to the Basement from Blame Society. Uh, it's similar to that, um, but leans more towards the uh, the films that are that have a, like a cult audience. Uh, like I I I do something like uh, Last House on the Left before I would do Metropolis. But anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, I'm also I've, I've uh, almost 200 episodes of the Ron Perti show, which I don't know, maybe it needs to come back. I'm not sure. And then uh, that's a podcast. And then I uh, I'm a filmmaker, I guess, too, uh, and a writer, uh, writer before director. I think. I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say so. I'm more I'm more I'm more the Kevin Smith type, where I'm a great writer, but I, I'd much rather just be sitting there writing. Um, and I also didn't make Tusk, but that's besides the point. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say. Uh, I'm a, a fun-loving guy. I'm a Taurus. <laughs> I don't like long walks on the beach because I get winded. Uh, I'm I'm looking for that special girl who will curl up on the couch with me and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then get busy. <laughs> I love the honesty. Uh, so today on the uh, Shameless Picture Show, we're not talking about one specific film. Uh, I It's hard to do the Shameless Picture Show proper when Nick's not here, because I just feel like that specific format uh, is something that me and him came together, so I try to respect, came, uh, came up with together, so I try to respect that. But instead, what I wanted to do today is I picked a topic. And I, 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 I picked, it was so... I gave Ron very little information because I didn't want this to be a super structured episode. I just said, pick four or five films. What, what was the exact word I gave you that reminds you of summer or that you like summer movies? I don't remember exactly how I worded right. it to you. So yeah, something like that. General topic theme is is summer, and then you take you. Uh, the challenge for you was to internalize that however you wanted, whether or not you wanted films to actually be set in the summer, movies that you watch ritualistic in the summer, however you wanted to go about it. And I figured we'd go through our list of four or five each, you know, one, one after another, and uh, see what conversations spur up from it. <clears throat> Works for me. 
So I tried to tailor my list a little bit towards what I thought you might pick. Okay. If that makes sense. Uh, so uh, I, I for a couple options, I have two options per pick. Okay. Uh, just in case. But uh, do you want to do you want to start it off or should I? Um, you can go ahead. I mean, I my uh, I I can tell you how I what my my thought process when it was when I was picking the, the movies. If you want, yeah, uh, maybe it'll help you with your options. Uh, basically, when I think of summer and movies, I think of big blockbusters because that's the uh, I'm 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 I was born in mid '79, so summer to me, going to the movies was always huge blockbusters, uh, lots of epic things. You know what I mean? That really kind of uh, 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 encapsulated um, the grandiose nature of Hollywood. That's a great way to approach it. Um, for me, I, it was when I think of summer or when the summer hits, what hits me in the face that I need to watch? Like a, a bit of nostalgia. Like with my number one, which they're not in order of any sort of rank. It's just how I put them um, since I'll start it off. My number one is Sean Cunningham's Friday the 13th. Hey, hey. And the reason that is is because... Every time I go swimming in the summer, my first thought is, I want to go home and watch Friday the 13th. It's almost instinctual, because most of the places I go swim are probably out in the middle of nowhere, uh, some sort of lake that reminds me of summer camp, and then just instinctually, it's like, I need to go home and watch Friday the 13th. Because while I love, there's there's entries in the Friday the 13th franchise I love more than the original one, the first one is the most summer-esque film i can think of yeah because they're all babes in the woods in more in, in more than one sense of the word and it's the most it's the one that even though they never there's no never any kids in that summer camp it's the one that feels the most like summer camp uh, a lot of the cinematography and the shots just kind of and even though i think it was shot in like the fall i think but it just feels like summer yeah, it was shot in the fall, and then what ends up happening is when you get to, like, part six, where they actually have kids in the camp, um, everybody's running around wearing winter jackets. Yep. Which was hilarious to me. But yet, with all that, it's just like, when I, as soon as my foot hits the water in the summer, I want to watch Friday the 13th, and... Part of that, I guess, is nostalgia because I never actually went to summer camp, so I have a fondness for summer camp movies. Uh, but yeah, I thought Friday the Thirteenth was—it's it, probably my go-to summertime movie. Okay, well, this one—it's uh, my turn, right? Yeah. This isn't exactly a a go-to summertime movie for me, but when I think of the like I mentioned the big grandiose kind of blockbuster type movies that come out in the summer, this movie is the one that started it all. And I'm talking about Jaws. Um, I almost added Jaws, I, but thought you might end up doing it, so I didn't pick it. There you go. See, I think that that movie is it still scares people, um, even though there's only like six shark deaths a year or something. Uh, people still think that you can't go in the water because Bruce is coming. Uh, and in a way, um, I would argue that part one and two are kind of almost, I think part one more than part two. I'm going to disagree with some people who call part two a slasher picture. Part one is a slasher picture because you never see the shark until the end, which is the way, like, 
Friday the 13th, you don't see the killer till the end. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of... And I think I, Roy Scheider is probably the best uh, hero you could get for that situation. Uh, and you get performances by Robert Shaw, that, that is the speech on the boat. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady and just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water. It was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura, so as he swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out, the sharks took the rest, June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Whenever somebody asks me to, to try an audition for something, 
that's what I go for for a monologue is the Robert Shaw speech on, in Jaws because it's just you know I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read Shakespeare or even Troma you know Tromeo and Juliet because I don't want to lose a job at Disney now but uh, sorry James uh, <laughs> I love you but uh, no it's uh, I go with that Quint speech because it's just there's something about the way Robert Shaw delivered it and the, and the way it was written and I just Jaws is I don't watch it all the time. But when I do watch it, I get invested in it. I actually went a couple of years ago and saw it on the big screen uh, on a Sunday afternoon by myself. And I, 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 I was very enthralled in it, even though I've seen it like hundreds of times. So that's my that's my first pick. Uh, fun fact about Jaws. Um, you might you you uh, if anyone's going to know this factoid, it's probably you. But I'm going to just state it anyways for the audience that that famous speech was actually written by John Milius. Yes, it was. And if I remember correctly, he had to do it again. Uh, not Milius, but uh, Shaw, because he was drunk. If I <laughs> yeah. remember correctly, yeah, 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 he was drunk. And then after he after he got done filming, he had to bolt out of the country. Why? He owed back taxes. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. But no, the, yep. the, the story goes um, that, that Steven Spielberg needed a, a, a speech for Quint and just didn't know. Like, he was workshopping things. He had another writer friend of his work. He just couldn't think of anything. So he's like, well, who's the, who's the most manly man Hemingway person I know? John Milius. So he called him up and he's like, John, I need a speech. And he kind of gave him a little bit of background what he was looking for. He said, John took a minute. There was a moment of silence and he just delivered the entire speech as it was in the movie. That's how the legend goes. Well, John had come down to the Shark Shack with me several times. The Shark Shack was out in the San Fernando Valley and it's where we were building the mechanical shark. John really enjoyed it because he liked to kind of like stick his whole body into the maw of the shark. You have to imagine John, who always had some girth, um, uh, uh, you know, thrust into the shark, and all you saw was was his rear end and his legs, and you would suddenly hear John yelling, "Jaws!" and it would echo throughout the belly of the of the polyurethane mechanical steel shark. But because of that, you know, John was interested. I gave John the script to read, and John read the script and thought it was a good script. Uh, I gave him some books, you know, that were really terrifying books about tiger hunting, and he, he employed a lot of those ideas in Jaws. Stephen had a great respect and admiration for, for John's ability with dialogue. And I said, John, I got this scene, you know, about the USS Indianapolis. It's only two paragraphs long, but I think this is a, this, this could be an epiphany for all the other guys on the boat, the, the Richard Dreyfuss character, the Roy Scheider character, and the Robert Shaw character, to be able to share this kind of catharsis about what happened in 1945. Uh, but it's too short, and Howard's not doing any more writing on the movie, and will you take a crack at this? And he said, sure. Wrote it over the phone. I got 10-page monologue back from John. A 10-page monologue, which basically was very close to what's in the movie. It was the perfect way of letting the world know and the perfect way for us to know about his personality, about Quint. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bum, the Hiroshima bum. Robert Shaw read all 10 pages, and he loved every word, but Robert said, I can't say all this, it's too much to memorize. It, it was a very compelling speech, but it was a movie by itself. It was a movie within a movie. So Robert Shaw sat down and Robert cut the speech in half, and he did all the editing himself. He brought it down to five pages. 
You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. My favorite shot in the story of that scene is when he's in the middle of it, and there's this shot on me, and I'm going, what, else, what, what can you say when you hear a story like that? But it's Milius's words and it's Shaw's editing that wound up in the final film. Well, I'd like to keep that legend. Yeah, because that's the way I that's, like that, it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, like, I just imagine like the entire like Steven Spielberg is just taking notes and. But uh, actually, I got to show that movie to my wife for the first time a couple years ago. I think Marcus Theaters was showing it, and not only did she really gravitate towards it, and I always like when. Because um, I've seen a lot more movies than her. I've seen a lot more older I hope movies so. than hers. Um, so it's always great when like an older movie connects with someone, because she's younger than me too. So it's always great when uh, an older movie connects with someone. I just made it who, without knowing like the context, the story, you know, the historical context, without having a nerdy background in film. Because sometimes movies will work better for me than her just because I know more about uh, the film. And, uh, right. And then it was also great to see the theater was practically full. Yeah, mine was. I think it was. It was the same time that uh, I went was when they had a little like it was on, on the weekend. Yeah. Uh, I went. I went on like a Sunday afternoon, and it was a small theater, and it was maybe, maybe half full. I got to sit by myself and not have to be bothered by people, and everybody was quiet and respected the film, which was great. I went like a seven o'clock showing, and. It was so full. You know, in, in majority of theaters, they've got, like, the walkway that splits the lower level from, like, the upper stadium seating. Right. I had to sit in the lower level because it was so full. Oh. Which, luckily, I was the very last row, which is the closest I like to get. Because you can still watch and sit comfortably. Yeah, yeah. But anything closer than that is painful, like... uh tangential story a little bit from jaws uh when me and my wife went to go see it the the the, the newest one for the first time uh yeah i don't think we got 20 minutes into the film it, the movie was so packed and so sold out we were in the second row we could not watch the movie comfortably so we actually left and it's like i'll oh. i'll eat the price of admission and come to see another day where i can actually enjoy the film yeah, I hate that kind of stuff. That's why uh, I'm always real quick on the day of buying. Uh, I I tend to just go to see movies on Tuesdays because it's five bucks. I'm cheap, but uh, uh, it's always the movies that you never think are gonna have an audience. That I go. I try to go to like I wanted to go see. Uh, Sorry to bother you this last Tuesday, but I ended up going to see Ant Man and the Wasp, and uh, I just kind of it was meh. Quick review of Ant Man and the Wasp. It was missing something. Edgar Wright. <laughs> yeah it's um i've got my own thoughts about that movie the, the what I, my quick review is i had a lot of fun but it wasn't very good <laughs> yeah well yeah it was just meh but um yeah actually the same thing happened to me when i tried to go see the big sick i thought oh no one's gonna go see this movie it's a small little indie comedy romantic comedy no one's gonna see this movie it, three weeks in a row i could not get a tick to that movie see that's uh that's you, you never know <laughs> You never know what's going to happen yep. with a flick. No. My number two is a lot of times from the, during the summer, I get into that weird pretentious mode of mine where uh, I get really into film history. And for some reason, um, 
I usually get more into silent films in the summer. I don't know what it is, but something about the heat. I just imagine the 1920s was perpetually hot. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, so my number two option is The General, directed by Buster Keaton from 1926. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about when I say my number two, it's going to be a, a complete con- contrast from that. But uh, no, I love Keaton. I'm more of a Chaplin guy, but I'm uh, I'm a big Keaton fan, and I I, uh, I love the general. It's good stuff. Good evening, this is Orson Welles, and it's my my great pleasure to introduce this evening in this series of great silent films one of the great films of all time, one of my favorites, The General, by and with Buster Keaton. He was, as we're now beginning to realize, the greatest of all the clowns in the history of the cinema. For too many years, he was under the shadow of Chaplin, of course, and for too many of his last years, he had a very bad time of it. Those were the years in which I knew him. We used to work in the old stage door canteen. I was doing magic tricks for the troops, and Keaton was washing dishes. He was a lovely person, the supreme artist. And I think one of the most beautiful people was ever photographed. He had his own way of working, his own way of building up gags, slowly and meticulously. But this style was developed later in his career, as you'll see from these clips from his very earliest films. Okay, now for the feature. And what a feature it is. The General. It's about the Civil War. In fact, I think it's the Civil War movie. Nothing ever came near it. Not only for beauty, but for a curious feeling of authenticity. And yet this is a farce. A farce without Chaplin-esque sentiment, but imbued with a real and very curious sort of dignity. Nobody except Keaton has ever brought us that close to the feel of the Civil War, except maybe uh, Matthew Brady, who was there at the time and who was, of course, the first and maybe the best still cameraman of all time. This movie has a kind of Brady quality, a lot of other qualities besides. It really deserves that tired word, masterpiece. Right at the start, before we showed you this wonderful film, I think I mentioned the extraordinary beauty of Keaton's face. Well, what about the extraordinary beauty of the film itself? Very few films in all history have ever equaled it. On the subject, certainly, nothing. It's a hundred times more stunning visually than Gone with the Wind. You had half as good a time as I did watching it. You enjoyed yourself. The one thing I will say that Chaplin definitely does better than Keaton is, is, is Chaplin is tugs at the emotion, the emotions of the movie go better. Yep. Uh, but Buster Keaton is... 
when you think about magic in cinema, that man just is is he is magic when it, in, in cinema. And um, the reason I picked the general out of all of his all of his other films is I kind of internalized what you were saying about. Um, the summer is time for big blockbusters and the general was a blockbuster for its time in a sense where it's a big grand scale movie about a train conductor and the things he this man does with a train a real live actual train is insane yeah the uh and i love how everything had to be done in, the, in one take because they couldn't do it like the one shot i don't want to spoil the uh 90 year old movie for anyone but um yeah, feel the free. uh well, I, uh, I, I want people to experience this. The, the, the general is one of those movies you need to see. Um, but that last sequence, uh, I love how you get one shot. Don't mess it up. Yep. And it, it's and it it paid off. You know, I think a modern day Buster Keaton would be Jackie Chan. Yeah, totally. And Jackie Chan is is, is uh, hugely inspired by Keaton, and you can definitely see it. Like what, one of the things that makes Keaton's work so well is his body language it could be you know because comedy lives in the wide shot there's so many times where it's a wide shot in this movie and he's hysterical without like without really doing anything it's just you know a shrug of the shoulders and he emotes so much through it like both both him and chaplin were amazing at emoting through their body language but done completely different yeah, uh, Chaplin and plus Chaplin was uh, better at getting sixteen year old girl sixteen year old girls too, but uh, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, you know, and, and there's certain sequences like in other other films. Uh, I think it was was the the house one, Steamboat Bill Junior. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's the kind of thing where you can't you can't do that today. They'd never allow you to do that today. The, the stunt union would be like, nope, uh, uh-uh. uh. There's actually kind of a sad story behind that. Uh, that that stunt, um, you know, they're planned to do it and everything. And it seemed to happen a lot with these 1920s stars, or just just movie stars in general, where they weren't always the most faithful people, and they like to go out and party and everything. But um, his his he was having issues with his spouse at the time. I don't remember which one, because the man's been married three times. But um, he was going through a bad... I think I don't know if it was a bad break or a bad divorce, but uh, they're like, okay, uh, this this scene, Buster, is very not safe. We shouldn't do this. And he pretty much just said, it's like, I don't care. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah, let's, let me see how you do my best Buster Keaton impersonation, because when you see him, you never expect to hear this come out of his mouth. <clears throat> yeah, let's just do it. I mean, the guy, the guy sounds like he sounded like he smoked 14 packs a day. Yeah, like I think every bad. I think every frame of painting has an like, interview with him on like it, over over some of the clips they're showing, and it's like that's what he sounds like. He's like, "What the hell? Who is that?" That's, yeah. No, that's not Buster Keaton. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And one thing I love about the general is while it's not his funniest film, um, it's a complete spectacle, and it's I think it's thrilling for having no. No, no, no real audio, and depending on which version you're watching, the scores at this time were, you know, just you know, ragtag piano, or piani, if you if you will. But every the the movie keeps escalating itself, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you're like, how many stunts can one man do with a train? Infinite. 
infinite amounts of stunts with a train. I, I have to keep saying, a real live fucking train. And then throughout all of that, all the crazy things he does with the train. Like, if you don't feel like sitting down and watching a 75-minute movie, like silent movie, I get it. Silent movies aren't for everyone. At least go on right. and watch a highlight reel of this fucking movie and see all the crazy things he does with a train. And what's crazy, he broke his neck in this movie, but not with a stunt involving a train. <laughs> That's how it is, too. That's how, always how it works. It's like you think you think that, that the biggest, baddest stunt's going to be the one that puts you down. And then it's like... Oh no! I stepped on a crack and broke my leg. You 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 know the movie, right? You've seen it. Oh yes, um, yes, yes. It's it's that stunt. It's not really a huge spoiler because it's nothing really to do with the plot. Uh, but it's the stunt where he's pulling on the water for the train, and the the water comes down and hits him. Yeah, that's what broke his neck was the force of that water. Wow, that's like it's not a bad wow. stunt because you, you 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 when you see the scene, it's like that's you you're sitting there like that's a lot of water. Uh, but yeah, that's what broke water. his neck. Like he just had his neck in the wrong position when it came down. Uh, it, it, he said he heard a pop. He got up and walked off, walked off in the scene, and he realized, yeah, that's a broken neck. It's cr- oh, like, oh, sorry, that's crazy. That's like Taz when he broke his neck and he walked into the ER. Yeah, like Taz and Buster Keaton are the two sh- toughest men in the world. It's true. It's true, and you would not think that because one of them is four foot three. And the other one is uh, uh, Buster Keaton. But let's see if the audience can guess which one is known as the human suplex machine. Hint. It's one of those two. Okay, so my, my turn for my number two here? Yep, yep. Because, okay, here we go. Uh, we're going to go with uh, crazy stunts. Uh, my number two follows suit completely. And my number two is Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I almost uh, put a Mad Max movie on my list, but I didn't. Hi, I'm Brian Trenchard-Smith and this is Trailers from Hell. In 1977, George Miller came to me to negotiate the services of Australia's pioneer stuntman, Grant Page, whose career I managed at the time. George had made an award-winning satirical short, Violence in the Cinema Part 1. It's good if you can find it. Mad Max was to be his first feature with a $350,000 budget. It was a huge international success, triggering a new subgenre of post-apocalyptic action pictures, none of which came remotely close to the original or to George's two popular sequels, The Road Warrior and, in 1985, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Twenty years later, amid the glut of CGI superhero movies, what were the chances that a reboot of the franchise without the original star Mel Gibson could arouse an audience the same way the original did? and exceed their expectations. The film starts with Max, now played by Tom Hardy, on the run from the living and the dead, angry ghosts of the kids he befriended in the Thunderdome movie, but evidently could not save. We're plunged immediately into an arid, poisoned world, fallen into illiteracy, where warlords compete for slender resources equipped with the salvaged remains of late 20th century technology. Max's captor, Immortan Joe, a worthy villain as played by Hugh Keysburn, has spoliated mythic elements from Roman and Nordic culture to justify slavery and inspire his troops to suicidal heroics with the promise of glory in Valhalla. Yet backstory and exposition are kept to the minimum. George set out to embrace the basic principles of silent era filmmaking, tell as much of the story as possible with images rather than words. His wife and editor, Margaret Sixall, said they cut the action scenes silently, 
no sound effects or music enhancement till the value and impact of the visuals had dictated the order and length of the shots. The 135-day shoot produced 480 hours of footage, that's three straight weeks of viewing, which the Millers shaped into 2,700 cuts, running two hours. George broadened the appeal of this sequel by partnering Mad Max with Mad Maxine. By that I mean it is Imperata Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron with fierce commitment, who is his equal in badass skills and drives the story rather than Max. George takes care not to sexualize her or suggest romantic interest. Their relationship is one of gradual mutual respect. The biggest plus of the film is the extraordinary stunt work coordinated by Guy Norris without injury to cast or crew. Vehicles collide, flip, roll, explode, all done for real at speed in the Namibian desert. Adding a visceral charge you don't get with CGI, which is primarily used here to enhance landscapes. It was great to see old Australian friends at the top of their game. I did four pictures with director of photography and Academy Award winner John Seal. He delivers astonishing visuals to Fury Road and deserves another Oscar nomination. I, uh, I love that movie. Uh, if I could make sweet, sweet love to it, I would. Uh, another it's the fi- one film. Oh, continue. What's another, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, you know, guys, cinephiles who have sex with movies but uh, I think it's some weird niche but uh, it's the only film in the last 10-15 years that I remember going to more than three times in the theater it's also another movie highly inspired by the works of sound comedians exactly there's the bit where he, like he's swinging back and forth on that giant pole there's the it, everything about that screams like a Buster Keaton like movie uh, and it's it's what what's so weird about it is it's got basically has no plot at no, all. No, it's just chase one way, chase back another, and that's it. And massive destruction, and a blind guy with a guitar that shoots fire. Ron, I'm, I'm going to pitch you something right now because our number twos work out really fucking strangely well. We need to somehow work it out where we can find someone who's willing to do lend us a space that we can do a screening. We need to do a double feature of The General and Mad Max Fury Road. I'm down. Because they're let's practically the same movie. In a lot let's, of let's ways. Talk to, let's talk to The Times. Yes. See if they'll do it. Yes, I, I, I agree. Let's talk to The Times. Let's, let's, see who's on, who, let's see who owns the downer and talk to someone. Fury Road is one of those films where you know you're not seeing much in the way of substance, and it's all style, but you can't look away, and you have to see it again and again and again and again. And I have yet to see it, but I think I think I still have it. I don't know the uh, the blood and chrome version where it's in oh, black and white. I have it. I I haven't sat down to watch it either. I wanted to do a feature double feature of that and Logan Noir. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's another one I haven't seen. Logan Noir. Um, but I, I love this movie and it's one of those things where you, you know how when you love something and you don't know why you love it, but you just do and you defend it to your last breath. That's Mad Max Fury Road for me. That's how uh, I felt when not, I saw Drive for the first time. And it's like, I will fight anyone to the death about this movie. Yeah. It's, and, and you know, what's funny is Max and the driver are very similar because they don't say much and they're very, very violent individuals. Yep. And they drive. Yeah. And but what I, one thing I love is Max does actually very little in this movie. He's closer to um 
to uh, uh, Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China than he is anyone else because he, much like Kurt Russell in that movie, he spends half the movie not being able to do anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But of course, when it comes to Big Trouble, he has all the uh, the best lines. Uh, I think that might have been a trade off with with Carpenter. He's like, "You give me all the best lines, and I'll only be in the movie for a half an hour." Um, but it, and that's the thing is that this was totally uh, Charlize Theron's movie. Uh, but yet it's called Mad Max, and he, I loved I loved the fighting online that people were like, "Well, Max doesn't really do much of anything. How come? How can it be called a Mad Max movie?" It's like, have you not seen the other ones? Yeah. With the exception of the first Max movie, this is that's that's the the whole formula. It's about the people around him that affect what happens to him that causes the the movie to be as great. Like Road Warrior is so good. So good, and I thought it was the best Max movie until Fury Road came out. Yeah, and actually, um, in just recently on the show, we did a, an episode about the original Mad Max, and I'm I've I've learned in that episode that not everyone has the same tastes as me because um, my co-host was not a huge fan of the original Mad Max, and the biggest reason, and I don't the reason I don't think he might be I don't think he's going to be a huge fan of Fury Road. Is because my co-host comes from a literary background. He he has an uh, English degree. He's a, he's an he's a filmmaker as well, but style does not work as substance for him. The movie could have no style whatsoever. No, uh, but if it's got a story that he can gravitate to, then he's gonna love it. These movies don't have story. No, they they really don't. They go they back don't. to what what makes to what that what what made cinema what it was was just moving images on screen. One of my favorite stories of all time is with the Lumiere brothers when they first, uh, you know, was able to get something on moving pictures and they decided to show it to an audience and it was a train coming right at them. People with their primitive screwball minds at the time got so freaked out that they ran out the tent. That's all. That, that was the, that was that was what cinema was. It was just moving images that are supposed to make you feel something, and that's what Mad Max Fury Road does. That's what the General does. These number twos really worked out well together. Yes, they did. They really did. Somehow, I think our number threes are going to be vastly different. But go ahead. All right. Let's see. I, I I picked like seven movies, so I'm picking what I actually want my number three to be. Um, actually, fuck it. I'll go off my original number three. So w- when it comes to the uh, th- with summer movies, I'm a big fan of westerns, and I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of. Uh, of movies that took inspiration from westerns, if that makes sense. Oh, it um, does. So, like, my number three, a movie, when I think about summer, while I don't necessarily watch this movie every summer or anything, it's just, it, it defines the look and feel of summer and is it has the look that I'd want to recreate if I ever made a movie in the summer. David Lowry's film Ain't Them Body Saints from 2013. It's a... Uh, it's a movie that I, I fell in love with. I got a chance to see it at the Milwaukee Film Festival the year premiered. I was lucky enough to meet David Lowry, and we were on relatively good uh, email terms for a while. He just got super busy around when he started working for Disney, and we kind of fell out of touch. But his movie blew me away simply because, much like The General or Mad Max Fury Road, it's a movie that's not really about much. But it really can play play with your heart. Yeah, that's uh, that's a movie. I, ha- I that that would have to be on my shame list because I uh, this is actually the first time time I'm ever hearing about it. 
So I'll have to uh, I'll have to definitely check it out. Well, the movie. Uh, um, I realize I've been pretty bad at actually describing what any of these movies are about as we've been talking. But a lot of these movies, though, I mean, if people haven't seen them, they can't call themselves film fans. But Amer- uh, uh, Anthem Body Saints is a, a romantic crime drama, and I'm a sucker for like lovers on the run movies and crime films, but not necessarily. Like, well, I love all types of crime films. Like this, like the specific subgenre of romantic crime films really stick with me. Something like Bonnie and Clyde, or even like the newer Public Enemies. Like it, they work with me when they've got some emotional pull. And it's about it stars Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, and they are two criminals. Not nothing too crazy, like a little bit of robbery, and you know they get wrapped up into a big police shootout and. Uh, Casey Affleck's character known as Bob ends up killing one of the cops completely by accident. Like, you know, they like, I can't say by accident because they're having a shootout with the cops, but no one goes into that situation knowing they're going to kill someone. Very, very rarely. Um, actually, I, I misspoke. Uh, Rooney Mars' character is actually the one that killed the cop, but Bob took the fall. So he ah, goes to okay. prison. She's pregnant. You know, she gets off. And, uh, you know ends up having their kid and everything and starts a new life without him and he gets out of he gets out of prison and she's not too sure she wants to go back with him and uh he i guess i should mention he escaped from prison oh and uh she's trying to get there and to see his wife and daughter never he's never like he never comes across as malicious or evil he just wants to see his family that he's been pining for for years plus it's also got an amazing performance by ben foster and who doesn't fucking love that guy um, uh only only people who are lacking in half of a brain uh it's it's just a really amazing quiet understated movie and um who it's it takes place in texas so there goes that you know that summer summer feel that summer vibe uh it's it feels very influenced by like westerns and terrence malick and while it's a contemporary film because of the the style and the look it it feels very like out of time it's a movie i've been championing for many years and every time i see it i like it more and more well you know it's funny because can i actually make an announcement right now of course go for it Okay, so, okay, now, while we mentioned before it's been Ape Month on Movie House, you just described a film that's very similar to the first film I'll be doing in September on the show. Uh, And I was going to wait to announce this, but breaking, uh, September 6th on Movie House, I'll be talking about True Romance, one of my favorite films ever. One of my favorite movies. One of my favorites, too. Love that movie. So there's, I mean, when you mentioned that, it made me think of of, uh, True Romance. Well, so. if like I said, it, it doesn't have the the fast paced style of true man, true romance. I would say both Anthem Body Saints and True Romance are very similar in in this in how they're written, but different at the same time. Where I, I hate doing those type of contradictions, but like True Romance is very fast paced. It's very pop culture oriented, but when there's scenes between Clarence and Alabama. It's it almost feels like Quentin Tarantino didn't write them because it's very unlike anything else he's he's written before. And it's one of the reasons I right. like that film so much. And those quiet, understated moments in a movie as loud and boisterous as True Romance is is what Anthem Body Saints is like for the entire runtime. So for some that might not be too appealing, but it's one of those movies that I I say if you 
it's it's best to watch it around dusk when the sun's going down and watch it very loud because the score gives you gives me goosebumps and if you if you're if you just allow it to it will really get to you where are you going home huh? home's the other way not mine are you going back to your mom's well, it was a 15 mile walk i know how far it is all right well then i'll just walk with you you do whatever you want. What I want to do is take you back to our house. Why'd you tell Freddie you were going to strike out on your own? <laughs> I don't think I said that, but if I did, when I say on my own, I mean you and me. I always mean you and me. <laughs> hey. You're going to leave me? No, I'm not going to leave you. Nobody's leaving Because I will leave you first. <laughs> it's not funny. I'm not going to leave you. You're not going to leave me. Because if you do, I just follow you. Well, I'll have to check that out. And also, if you haven't seen True Romance, check that out, too. I uh, so, Your turn. So, my yes, my number three uh, <laughs> doesn't have Rooney Mara, doesn't have Casey Affleck. Um, it does, however, have Chris Evans, and it does have Robert Downey Jr., and it has... Uh, Chris Hemsworth and Mark Ruffalo and Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana and Dave Bautista. That's right. Avengers Infinity War. Ooh, uh, a very new addition to to the list. Yeah, it's it's just it's so there's something about it. Like they went like it, it, it took them 10 years to get to that point. Not like in a boyhood pretentious look at me I'm Richard Linklater way. More of a uh, just like they they took the time to build everything. One one thing know? I will say, and, I loved Boyhood, but we should also real quick before you get too deep into this. There's more than likely going to be spoilers in this, so while this is, I don't, we try not to talk about new brand spanking movies on new movies on the Shameless Picture Show. Be warned, there's a good chance there's going to be spoilers here. Continue, Ron. Oh, there, yeah, there probably will be. But and that's the thing is, you have you finally have a villain who poses a, a massive threat in this movie. He's not the best rendition of Thanos by any stretch of the imagination, but he's actually a villain who could do some damage. Well, I'm and he. Oh, continue. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, and you you have Thor who doesn't have his hammer anymore, and he's he's got one eye, and he has to find a way to. Uh, avenge the fact that certain people in his life are... I'm trying to spoil without spoiling big things. Uh, you know, like what happens on the ship in the beginning. You know, what he lost on the on the ship. He's tr- he's he's like, I'm good. Thanos is going to pay for what he did. You've got uh, Tony Stark, who's just being Tony Stark. You know, and let's be real honest here. This movie was Benedict Cumberbatch's movie. Yep, and because Doctor really, Strange was I didn't so really like good. Doctor Strange movie, but I loved him in this. Yeah, so if you're a fan of Benedict Cumberbatch and you're tired of Sherlock, uh, watch Infinity War because he's in it quite a bit and he's amazing in it, and he's one of the few people who can actually go toe to toe with Thanos, and uh, which is weird, uh, but it's just so good. And you go in there, and, you, and there's a there's a character that you go in liking. And then he does something so goddamn stupid that you're like, what is wrong with you? And it ruins it for everybody. And I love I love when I went to go see it. Uh, what happens in the end with the, 
you know, uh, and everything happening, uh, there were a group of, must have been a group of friends sitting behind me. And there's a certain Marvel character that just debuted in the MCU, and his movie was amazing and made a lot of money. I think you know who I'm talking about. And I, I'm trying not to spoil. Um, but uh, this is No Place to Die, that guy. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, when he when he when he does, everybody lost their minds. We just got him. What the? You know, and it's and they just lost. And that's the kind of reaction you want in a theater. Yeah. And one thing you I know, think this mo- movie does really well is because I'm a comic book fan. You're a comic book fan. Um, it's very easy to get fatigue from these movies when they're coming out so fast and you know some are good some are bad some are great you know it's just what it is but this movie does a great job of making you care yes it adds dimension to characters that didn't have it it adds dimension to a villain which could you know in a lot of times in the superhero movies your villains are very one-dimensional he's not and you see yourself think like there's times in the movie you're like I can see why you are the person you are and why you think this is gonna gonna work. Um, and this is this is rarely ever happens with a superhero movie. It left me kind of speechless. That very last shot, without spoiling, I think you know what I'm talking about. With one yeah, character yeah, yeah, yeah. just reflecting, stuck with me for a yeah. while. See, that's the thing is though, as a comic book fan, and I've read it Infinity Gauntlet. I know that that's the thing is everybody takes it. To, the people who don't read the comics are so forlorn over the fact that all these people are gone. But what they don't seem to realize is that they have a plan. There's another movie coming out next next year that's going to basically retcon everything that just happened. Yeah, pretty much. But that's you know, what comic books do. They undo everything they've yeah. done before. In fact, they set up they set up how it's going to get undone uh, in the post credit sequence of Ant Man and the Wasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, but uh, that's 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 either here nor there when it comes to spoilers. But yeah, so Avengers: Infinity War is one of those films. And I, I I just I I didn't go back to the theater to see it again because I I don't want to spend that kind of money uh, to see a movie. But I'm very choosy about. Uh, what movies I pick up now on Blu-ray and DVD and stuff. Um, because I used to, years ago, just kind of pick up movies to say I have a big collection. Um, but now I'm being very picky and choosy as to what I pick up. Uh, that's a movie I'll pick up. Yeah. I'm probably going to buy it as well. I might not buy it today, but I will be picking up the the 4k version of that film and re-experiencing it again because i've only seen it the one time um but i'm excited to see it again yeah and i guess there's like two hours worth of extras and that's my thing is i love bonus features that's my film school i didn't go to a, a, a traditional film school i watched bonus features and uh, i learned how to do things through through that so if you ever want to get into the monster movie making business just watch a guillermo del toro behind the scenes uh, uh, stuff on on, on, uh, on like maybe Pan's Labyrinth or, or or Shape of Water, and that's there you go. I agree. Uh, my next film is 
probably one of the best films I think set in summer because it it shows heat in a on a set in a way that very few movies can because a lot of times when you shoot a movie and you want to show heat you shoot locations like right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre shows the heat by having a a a great location this movie is shot completely on a set, but you never once deny that it's a summer. And I'm talking about Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 classic Rear Window. Ooh. One, a movie that I, I will be the first to admit I had just seen for the first time a year or two ago. Uh, but it probably is my favorite Hitchcock movie of all time. At the moment, I'm you know, he's got such a huge, dis, uh, huge filmography that you, it's hard to see them all. But Rear Window blew me away. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne. Hope you're enjoying our month-long Sundays with Hitch. We all have our own particular favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies, of course. My list starts with Notorious, but also right at the top. My list certainly includes our next two films on this September 15th, both of them with one of Hitchcock's favorite leading ladies of the 1950s, the wonderful Grace Kelly. Next, we have Rear Window, released by Paramount in 1954. Grace Kelly this time teamed with another Hitchcock favorite, James Stewart. In the 40s and 50s, you know, Hitchcock had his pick of any actor in Hollywood, and he used Jimmy Stewart in four of his films. But what's so interesting about Rear Window, besides the fact it does constitute the first and only teaming of Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, is the way the story is told. It takes place entirely in one room, Jimmy Stewart's apartment in New York's Greenwich Village. But the movie never feels claustrophobic for a moment. It moves, it zigs, it zags, and it keeps moving as Jimmy and the camera constantly keep peering outside the window of Jimmy's apartment. Jimmy often looking through a pair of binoculars as he keeps tabs on his neighbors in the adjoining apartments. One thing he sees when he peeps out his window, or at least he thinks he sees, is a possible murder. And from then on, it's pure Hitchcock. Hitch most deservedly received an Academy Award nomination for his direction on this movie, a film he always called his ultimate peeping Tom story. The script by John Michael Hayes was nominated for an Oscar as well. So was the color cinematography by Robert Burks. But for some strange reason, there was no nomination for the incredible set by Hal Pereira, built entirely on a soundstage at the Paramount Studios in Hollywood. It's one of Oscar's amazing oversights. It's a great movie from 1954, and it also has in it Thelma Ritter, Wendell Corey, and Raymond Burr. And we bring you now Rear Window. It's, oh boy, this is going to sound so bad. Uh, I've never seen Rear Window. I've always kind of, I appreciate Hitchcock, and there are certain films of his that I've seen that I uh, take a lot from, like Rope mm-hmm. uh, and, and Psycho and stuff like that. Uh, I have a box set that has Rear Window in it. I plan on watching it. It's on my shame list, but... <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, yeah, for, uh, well, let's put it this way. Uh, this, my shame list is weird because, uh, up until like two weeks ago, I had never seen Christine. I still haven't seen it and I own it. I, that you have to watch it. It is so good. Uh, it's not a horror movie, a horror movie at all. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic romance. Um, but yeah, I've never seen Rear Window. Uh, I know it's an amazing film. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I can count on, on my hand how many Hitchcock films I've seen. I've seen uh, Psycho, obviously. Uh, being from Wisconsin, you kind of have to. 
uh, what other, uh, Sabotage, which was an early picture. If you haven't seen that one, that one's got that great, great tension building in that one. Uh, what else have I seen? Uh, Vertigo. And the other reason I went back and watched Vertigo is because uh, my family, uh, we're kind of a big fan of the show Dallas. And Barbara Bel Geddes is in Vertigo. So I had to see her when she was a youngin, as opposed to damn near 60-year-old Barbara Bel Geddes on Dallas. Um, so, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock. I have a lot of Hitchcock. I just don't have time to sit down and watch it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so I'm, I'm always so busy uh, watching stuff for the show. And, and and I have to, you know, so then you have to sit down and write a script and all this other kind of stuff. I've seen Escape from the Planet of the Apes like 100,000 times, but I still had to go back and watch it so I could get little things. Like, yeah. did they mention this? Did they fit, did, you know, do they explain how they did this and that? So a lot of my time lately, I, I haven't had a chance to sit down and really kind of watch movies for enjoyment. Um, Trust me, I get that. It's uh, so it's kind of, so I mean, it's on my list. I'm looking at the box set right now. Uh, but I just, I haven't seen Rear Window and I feel like a horrible person. It's one of those movies that like, I knew I was going to appreciate because like you see how any Alfred Hitchcock film, you can see like, oh, that's why this is important. So on, but I didn't think I was going to be as into it as I was, um, you know, everything from its technicolor cinematography to the way that. Hitchcock builds tension and this movie has been aped so many times um, most notably from the film uh, Disturbia uh, oh, yeah. which I didn't mind I thought it was a, was, was perfectly Isn't fine Isn't that bringing movie. on back to Shia LaBeouf? It, it does. This movie is about a photographer you know just going to give the, the quick elevator pitch essentially this movie is about a photographer who's laid up in his apartment after an injury <clears throat> uh, his leg is broken uh, he keeps his window open because you know it's not it's the ho- it's so hot in the summer he can't get any you know any cool air, so he just sits in front of his window, bored out of his mind because he's an action photographer doesn't know what to do, um, believes he has seen a murder in his apartment complex and becomes obsessed with trying to f- find to solve this murder, um, for having one location. Realistically, he does some amazing things in this film. Where all, every there there there's so many different characters in so many different locations, but it's all seen from his perspective out his window. And right, he takes single location to a new level because he te- he's got so many different locations, so many different things happening, but he only sees it from one location, which is a fascinating way to go about things and part makes. This movie is special as it is. Uh, James Stewart's always great. An actor that I didn't respect a whole lot when I was younger because I, I, I always thought he was more of a joke. But right. this movie shows off his acting chops. Grace Kelly is wonderful in this film. Um, and it like reinvigorated me to seeing Hitchcock's work and made it, made him uh, brought him up to an even bigger level than he already was me yeah i definitely have to see this picture uh and my uh we might as well just work it right into my uh my number four which is oh boy the complete complete opposite uh terminator 2 judgment day which is 
arguably the greatest sequel ever, I think. Uh, it captures everything that was great about the first one and <laughs> ramps it up to 100. You have this... Uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but you have this amazing performance by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and it, like you're not supposed to get a good performance out of Arnold. No. It's Arnold, and he's playing a robot. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. it's but but there's something about that film, like the the set pieces and how it it uh, uh, it blurred the lines between reality and fiction because you didn't know whether when you were looking at a, a stunt double in that movie, and there were plenty of times when it needed to he there was a, a stunt double was needed. You know, like the motorcycle going off the cliff, off the uh, 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 overpass. You know, but uh, it's uh, I I'm going w- firmly with Terminator Two, Judgment Day. It's a great movie. Like uh, I'm always gonna be a bigger fan of the original Terminator, but they're so closely, evenly to me that it's hard necessarily to pick. Right. Because you're right, it is one of the greatest, it is the greatest sequel to a movie ever. Well, there are people who would argue that Aliens might be the greatest sequel. Confession, haven't seen Aliens. Uh, watch I, Aliens before you make that statement. I like Alien so much that, like, I'm just, I don't know. It's it's That's what's keeping me away, is I just love Alien so much that I just haven't wanted to see the rest of the films. The thing about it is, is you don't have to after after two. You don't have to go on. You just you can just leave it at that. Um, but two, it, it's just like Terminator and Terminator Two because Alien is essentially a horror film in space. Terminator is a horror film set in downtown Los Angeles, uh, you know. And then and two is this giant action set piece. The entire film is a giant action set piece. Uh, and Aliens is a giant action set piece. You know, they're, uh, instead of it being a crew of, uh, I don't even remember what the, the crew of the Nostromo was. They're, uh, they were, uh, dr- del- dr- uh, drillers or something? Something like that. So, yeah, so, it's, you know, they weren't prepared to fight. But in Aliens, the Space Marines show up. You get Michael Bean. Uh, I mean, come on. You get Michael Bean, you get Bill Paxton. You get uh, you get Paul Reiser. So I mean, if you hate Paul Reiser, you'll hate him even more in this uh, because of this picture. Um, it's just uh, yeah, it's that's people will argue Alien Aliens over Terminator Two, but I'm more in the Terminator camp. I'm not a big Aliens fan. Period. Uh, I just I don't know what it is about the franchise. I'm more of a Predator guy. Okay. Uh, but even I can admit that Predator Two isn't all that great. Uh, but uh, because the pre- this I think I think maybe it's, it's, it comes down to honor and code because the predator predators have a a, 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 a code of honor, you know they they that they adhere to. Uh, so aliens are just there to kill. I agree. Um, one thing I will say is I, I actually uh, I'd seen Predator when I was younger, hadn't watched it again since until I got older. I rewatched it recently and really liked it, but I feel like I would have liked it more if Sony wouldn't have done such a bastardized version of that restoration. You know, that's the thing is now that's the thing that bothers me the most is is uh, everything has to be rest. You know, they have to do a restoration for everything. They have to remake everything. You know, why not pick up film that didn't do too well back in the day and remake that? 
I'm not talking remakes. I'm talking. Oh, I know. I know. I'm just saying, like, rest- or or restore an older, older film. Why do you have to restore Predator? Like a like because they everything they took out all of the film grain whatsoever in the version I have. So Arnold just looks like fucking wax. Dylan. But uh, yeah, I know. And then there's that. Is that part of the th- the three pack that just yeah, came out? Yeah. Well, the the new one that they just brought out on. 4k apparently they fixed it but i literally just bought this collection and don't want to buy it again well that's the thing is you've got another predator movie coming out and there here's a box set you're gonna have to buy another box set in a couple years i just made that mistake by buying the jurassic park box set and the new one's coming out in a couple weeks see i i i I, after jurassic park one i give up i can't do it i can't do it with the rest of those movies i just can't especially because ian malcolm in the book spoiler dies and and uh you know they they were gonna be like oh well we have to bring them back because you know so the, the the sequel to Jurassic Park in book form they had to find a way to bring him back because he, they wanted it to follow the, the movie and Jeff Goldblum survived the movie so it's weird but yeah but no so uh yeah that's uh we went off on a tangent there didn't we a little bit a little bit. I'm trying okay, to though. I'm trying to whittle down which one of my last three I should pick for num- my number five. Do I go something more fun? Do I go something a little more emotional, or do I go something just cool? Well, mine is two of those three, but you go ahead. I think I'm gonna go with an a weird choice because this movie wasn't super well loved when it came out but i think people should go back and rediscover it uh 2009 uh romantic comedy by greg matola adventureland i've only seen that once i remember uh so many people telling me because like greg matola just come off things off super bad and everyone was expecting this to be like a super bad level comedy uh, and everyone was trashing it, and I eventually got around to seeing it, and some of my most profound movie-going experiences, this is a movie I did see in the summer, I want to say I was just getting out of high school, just going into college when it came out, watched it late at night, because I couldn't sleep, uh, with just headphones on, and the movie really spoke to me, um, you know, it takes place in the summer. It's about a kid who needs to get a needs to get a, a summer job to help afford pay for college. And I don't know. I, I'm not gonna lie. A really well done romantic comedy. I'm a sucker for those. And with it, the its use of music and the performances in the film, I just really end up liking it. I thought Jesse Eisenberg was was charming, which he sometimes can be a little cold. Uh, Kristen Stewart, people give her a lot of shit, but she was also really good in this movie. Had a good, fun supporting cast and had an amazing soundtrack. And it made me nostalgic for a time that I never lived during. And that's impressive. It, it had the same quality that Days to Confused had for me. That's a sign of a good movie is to make you nostalgic for something you've never been through. Exactly. So that's, uh, yeah. I, uh, I I think you, know, you mentioned Jesse Eisenberg coming off cold. Uh, yeah, that's a, an understatement. Uh, I, I, I give you American Ultra. I give you Man of Steel. I liked American uh, Ultra. Uh, not Man stupid, of Steel, but, uh, but B- I had fun BBS. with it. Yeah, no, I, uh, not Man of Steel, BBS. But no, I, uh, that's just my personal thing against Max Landis. But, uh, I, uh, 
Yeah, I've only seen it once, but I remember. I mean, it, it's something that I didn't hate. Uh, that I would probably, if it presented the option, I would go back and watch it again. You know, um, I think Jesse Eisenberg, when it comes down to it, needs somebody to play off of that has loads of personality, and that's why he works so well in Zombieland mm-hmm. because Woody Harrelson it just oozes personality in that flick. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, yeah, Adventureland is a it's a it's a quality picture. It's and what works for me is. Jesse Eisenberg is, like I said, kind of he can be cold sometimes. When he's good, he can be he's really good. But there's other times you just feel like he's playing just Jesse Eisenberg. And Kristen Stewart is not an actress that's going to set the world on fire, but she plays her type of character really well. And strangely, two actors who aren't the best brought the best out of each other in this movie. Well, like yeah, sometimes you just need somebody to click with. And then having you know, Ryan Reynolds as the third wheel really work too. And I'm a sucker anytime Martin Starr shows up in a movie. So, yeah, I, uh, he was for me. He was the best part of Spider-Man: Homecoming. Um, that's actually saying quite a bit. But uh, so uh, down to my five, huh? Yep, your your last choice. My last choice. Well, I'm just gonna preface this by saying, Michael, throw me the idol. And I'll throw you the rope. That's right. My number five is Raiders of the Lost Ark. The most memorable thing about Raiders was just the making of Raiders. I, I, I had a great time working with Harrison Ford for the first time. Karen Allen, you know, John Reese davis Paul Friedman. My God, you know. Um, um, I, I just had one of the best times of my entire life working on that picture. And it was, it was like recreating a Saturday matinee. It was a cliffhanger. So it was all those films I used to see when I was eight and nine years old, the revivals of all the black and white Republic serials, and suddenly I had a chance to make a, a, a serial in widescreen and in Technicolor. It was very exciting. Well, for one thing, you know, the Harrison Ford character, Indiana Jones, is a vulnerable guy. He's tough as nails on the outside, but he gets hurt in the fights he has, and he's got a, a soft heart, and he's, he's, he's not strong with women. He thinks he is, but in fact, they get the better of them. They be- Karen Allen gives him a terrific sock in the jaw in that film. And uh, it had a little bit of the, I thought, the Gable Lombard connection. It had a little bit of Elsa and Rick from Casablanca. I've always thought that Harrison was a bit like a contemporary Humphrey Bogart. And uh, I thought he was perfect to play Indiana Jones. And of course they're going after a tremendously powerful religious icon, which is the Lost Ark of the Covenant. You know, with the power of God inside. I mean, I mean, I mean, we were, you know, we, we wanted our cake and eat it in that movie. And, and George came up with all of that. That was George's invention. And uh, it was just a tremendous MacGuffin to go after. I don't care how many times I've seen it. I don't care how many times it's on television. I don't care how many times they edit the hell out of it. I cannot. When that movie's on, I have to watch it. I have uh-huh. to. Uh, it's actually a close second to a different Indiana Jones film for me. But this one, uh, I like. I, I, I love my favorite Indiana Jones film is Crystal Sky. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. My favorite Indiana Jones film is Last Crusade. Uh, and that's just because of the way Harrison Ford and Sean Connery played off each other. We named but, the dog Indiana. Yeah, I, the, the only reason I pick Raiders of the Lost Ark is because it's the one that came first, and it that's set the fair. stage for everything. Uh, and it's the the back and forth between Harrison Ford and Karen Karen Allen, uh, and and uh, Sala John Reese Davies is just good God. 
you know, I am the captain of the sea. And and, and the, the whole the set pieces and how the, the part where he shoots the guy with the sword was because Harrison Ford was sick that day. And then, how you know, and, and it's and it's set of uh, the, the, the gag in Temple of Doom when he goes to grab his gun and it's not there. And it, it's just it's so fun. But you still get to see Nazis get beat up. And it it, it uh, you can you deal with theological things, but it's not shoved down your throat. Yeah, you know, uh, like the Ark, you know, uh, and and don't close your eyes, Marion. You know, I, I and it's so quotable too. You can say that kind of you know you say it. I can I I, I mentioned like last night. I was uh, I was I was setting up my my equipment to film. And my brother was in the other room, and it's like two o'clock in the morning. My brother's in the other room, and all I could hear him saying, for no reason whatsoever, is "Top Men." And I'm like, "Why did? But it, it's just Indiana Jones seeps into your life. And if they are going to remake it, please do it with Chris Pratt." Yeah, I think he'd be a great choice. Well, I think he could be a great choice. Um, I feel like sometimes Chris Pratt is best when you allow him to be funny that's the reason yeah. i didn't like him in the first jurassic world but i liked him better in the second jurassic worlds because the first one he's trying too hard to be serious okay let's go with bradley cooper then i can see bradley cooper but you got to go younger but you can't go too young because yeah. you want to uh you want you know and i think that indiana jones could definitely be like a james bond type where they keep recasting it yeah, uh, I completely he just agree. He's going on adventures. Yeah, I feel like sometimes people get too in love with the, with casting. Like, yeah, you know, I think Nightmare on Elm Street could continue working as a series. People just need to let Robert England go. Like, seriously, guys. Well, I think the thing about Robert England, he has something special that he brings to it. True. You know, but let's, uh, if, if we're talking about the remake to Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, 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 Jackie Early Haley is not the worst part of that film. He's actually the best part of that film. But that's besides the worst. Point. Well, one of the worst parts of that film is like, oh, he he was a child molester. You know, in, at least in the first the first Nightmare on Elm Street, it was just implied. You know, it did. They didn't come right out and say that he did it. No, but Wes um, Craven says he's a child molester. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, he is. I mean, there's no yeah, there's no getting but, around it. But going back to Indiana Jones, I agree. It's it's yeah. just a great fun summer movie and i got to see it very recently in in the theaters and i was like this it this still holds up this still really works um there's a couple times where like and this happens in a lot of the bond films too where the plot becomes a little convoluted it's like wait what the fuck are they doing and why but it's so yeah. so much fun you don't give a shit it's like the, one of the options i was going to pick for my last five was was goldfinger and in a lot of ways the movie's oh. the same way where you're like what the fuck are they doing and why but you don't care because it's so much fun yeah that's a, and that's how indie <laughs> is uh I, I will admit that uh temple of doom is my least favorite uh it's just i think it's too dark of a film mm-hmm. uh but uh again indiana jones is i would argue more quotable than star wars I agree. Because uh, Star Wars, you got me the Force be with you, and, and little things like here and there. But Indiana Jones, you've got toss me the toss me the idol, I'll toss you the whip, or uh, you know stuff like uh, what else is there? Top Men, Bad Dates. Uh, he chose poorly. Uh, you know, uh, just things like that. And then oh, you know, Kali Ma. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that even made its way into Family Guy. You I, know, Meg I, was just like, you know. <laughs> I even think like. 
while I think the, the original Star Wars is a better made film than, than Raiders of the Lost Ark, not by much, but I think it is a better made film. And part of that comes down to simplicity. But Raiders of the Lost Ark is so much more fun. Well, here's where I'm... Oh, excuse me. Am I boring you, Ron? Am I boring? You are. You're, you're, you're so boring. No, uh, the, the thing I'm going to disagree with you on this is that Star Wars didn't come together until editing. So there was nothing out there for it to, to kind of be as a film. Indiana Jones had a far more competent director in Steven Spielberg than George Lucas. There's a reason why Lucas didn't direct Empire and uh, uh, Jedi. Uh, uh, but, you know, Spielberg is a far more competent director, um, despite some of his choices later, and despite the fact that most of the time he doesn't know how to end a film. One thing I will say about Spielberg, though, he's definitely had more hits than he's had misses, but even his misses have things in them that, like, fuck, you're, you, you can tell how great of a director he is. Oh yeah, like uh, I'm uh, one of my guilty pleasures is the film AI, uh-huh. and uh, you could a lot of people are like, oh well, that's that's just a, another stupid Spielberg picture. No, it was a Kubrick picture first. The only reason he didn't do it is because he died, but it's got that kind of Spielberg ridiculous ending, you yeah. know. Uh, and uh, he, I can't. Growing up, I loved ET. Mm-hmm. I can't go back and watch it because of decisions he made in changing the film. Uh, you know, take the guns out, put the uh, walkie-talkies in. Why? It, it creates That's... more of a threat. It, it creates more of a threat. The guns do, and they uh, make their. Uh, it makes you sympathize with ET and Elliot far more. That 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 copy that that version of the film is actually not that easy to find anymore. If you buy it now, it is the original version. Oh, well, then I guess I can have to buy a copy of E.T. But uh, it's it, it's just little little things like that. Like, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think what else. That, uh, well, let's not even talk about 1984, but, or 1941, rather. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the guy hit after hit after hit after hit, you know. And Star Wars, while it was a huge hit, came together in editing. They say that so much. Like I think they went like through two or three editors before they finally got it right. You know, and uh I think Indy was just kind of like boom boom boom. We have this great picture. We don't have to wait for it to come together at the end. No, I I completely agree. And to uh uh George Lucas's defense to an extent, he's the first to admit that films come together in editing because uh, his way of viewing a film is making a film is chopping down trees but editing is when you build the cabin to me editing is what filmmaking is really all about because it's a, the one time you get a chance to create something out of material and actually deal directly with an audience all the other times you're you're sort of generating material or supplies. It's like uh, making a film is like buying lumber or cutting down trees and making making wood out of it. Where editing is like actually constructing a house. I mean, you actually can see it, you can see what you're doing and deal with it. Everybody says, you know, well, the script doesn't work, but we'll fix it later. And they said, well, we're shooting this, but it isn't really working, but we'll fix it in the editing. Well, the editing is where it's got to be fixed. If it doesn't work there, the movie doesn't work. So that's, to me, the most exciting part.
So that's always been his philosophy. Um, but you know, and that's just, that's different, different strokes, different folks type of thing. Right. Um, I think, I think you have to have the film, you know, uh, together before you get to the editing bay. I think, I think you, you lay that, you lay down the, uh, the the track and then the train comes through in editing. The thing I will say about Lucas though, is he's not the same type of director as Spielberg. Lucas comes from, from an experimental background. So it makes yeah, sense he, 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 it makes sense that he doesn't necessarily know how to put a film together because that wasn't his his that wasn't his interest that's what that wasn't where he came from. Well, not only that, but he came out of that same school of was it Coppola and uh, De Palma and uh, all those people, and I think it's funny that he makes the most money when it comes to make to, to films. But the other guys can actually sleep with their dignity at night because they didn't make the prequels. But, yeah, that's fair. I think uh, your number five was a great choice, though, Ron. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I just watched it the other day. It was uh, on uh, the Paramount Network. They had a marathon. And uh, it's like, oh, I can ignore Temple of Doom, but I got to pay attention when Raiders is on. I completely agree, and it's been a while since I've seen the Last Crusade, but I want to revisit it at some point. Okay, I think I'm gonna buy the uh, buy the that box set that's out that doesn't have Crystal Skull in it. That came out a couple of years before they decided to uh, make Crystal Skull, uh, and then just kind of like revel in the fact that maybe there isn't a fourth movie, and I'm <laughs> just having a fever dream. I also don't hate Crystal Skull as much as everyone else does. It doesn't have the quality of the other three, but. I don't think it's as bad as everyone claims, but that's just me. I know I'm a, a very small minority there. Well, whenever that movie comes on, I get into my lead-lined uh, uh, refrigerator and uh, hope to survive the blast. I thought that was funny. It reminded me of the serials that inspired the fucking franchise. Yeah, I know, but I mean, there's, there's, I mean, this is, I don't know. I, it's just kind of, uh, it's hard to explain. I did just kind of. I, you know when you don't like something, but you can't, you don't know how to put into words why you don't like it, mm-hmm. because there's so many things wrong with it. That's Crystal Skull for me. That's fair. I just remember when it came out, and I went to go see it in the theaters, and I had a good fucking time with it. Well, and hey, that's, and that's what I expect it, out of that franchise. That's the thing, though, is is whenever somebody says that they have a guilty pleasure movie. Uh, I always look at them and I, I ask, I'm like, well, what do you mean, guilty pleasure movie? If it brings you pleasure, why should you feel guilty about it? Yeah, and that's why I don't subscribe to the guilty pleasure thing. So I'll flat out say I like uh, uh, Crystal Skull. You know, it's not the best movie I've ever seen, but I, I have fun with it. And that's all that movies are supposed to be, folks, is fun. Remember that. Fun. Mm-hmm. I'll say it again, Fun. Fun. Yay. <laughs> but uh, I think that's five for us both. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think that was a pretty good conversation. Hopefully, people who are listening also have their summer picks that they love, and we'd want to hear, we want, we like to hear what those are. Uh, so find us on Facebook and tell us what some of your favorite summer picks are. In the meantime, Ron, where can, where can the people find you at? 
Uh, all roads point to moviehousewithron.com. It's got all the links to social media, uh, the Patreon, and a contact button if you want your letter read on the show. Uh, that's a thing that I'm stealing from Joe Bob uh, because I want to become more uh, uh, interactive with the audience. Um, so you can do that. Uh, and this, when is this coming out? This is probably going to come out Friday. Okay, you can head over to moviehousewithron.com and you can see the newest episode, Escape from the Planet of the Movie House. Uh, I've decided to just start doing that kind of thing now. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's all, that's the thing, is it's a short episode, but it took forever to get done. And I think you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, from experience that yep. it takes forever. Uh, you know, you can, you can have a, a three minute short and it takes you 18 hours to get done. Uh, so it's, uh, it was a lot of fun doing. Uh, I am physically drained because I was up all night with it. So uh, please watch it and like it and uh, leave a comment saying that you went there to watch it because of this show. And we'll make sure we put a link to your website and everything in the description of the podcast. Uh, it's the least it's the least we could do for you cup uh you can find me at you know facebook and instagram tw- i don't really use twitter so much so facebook and instagram instagram at michael underscore virus pretty much you can find me anywhere um and then this podcast as always guys is available on itunes soundcloud stitcher radio and google play music and uh, keep your calendars marked. Uh, September 7th and 8th, the Milwaukee Short Film Festival is going on. I will be moderating a panel September 8th, I believe, at 3 o'clock, where I'll be talking with some in- with filmmakers from Milwaukee about making films in Milwaukee, transcending past it, and everything in between. Uh, and then my 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 film from the Darkness Theater will also be playing that night as part of the anniversary film showcase, where a movie that I thought I retired might still win an award. Go fucking figure. But remember that's September seventh and eighth. Be there on the eighth, and I will be there, and we can talk about what's on your shame list. Uh, anything else you want to add, Ron? Uh, if you have a movie that you want to see me talk about, uh, this is this is shameless promotion here but uh, i have a level uh on my patreon if you uh uh become a patron at that's i think it's i think it's a five or ten dollar mark i forget you can pick the movie that i'll talk about uh it could be one i've seen could be one i haven't seen uh so that's it's a i love that kind of thing because i love be interacting with the audience uh so uh again all those things are at moviehospiceron.com and uh, this has been fun I'm glad. And we're just about an hour and a half, so that's pretty dope in itself. Oh yeah, that's uh that's a it's about good 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 time for a, a podcast. I'm going to take probably a couple hours to edit it, but that's beside the point. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk soon.